Hello, everyone. Welcome back to BungaCast. This is Alex Hochelin in Sao Paulo, Brazil. It's Sunday, the 4th of September. I'm with George Horne, Phil Cunliffe, who are in the UK. And this is the first in an out-of-series series, if you want to call it that, called Bunga Zone 2022, where we look forward to the Brazilian election and eventually we'll probably look back on the Brazilian election when we get to that point. Uh, we're less than a month away from the first round of the election, uh, so this is a good time. Uh, to talk about it. And before I bring in uh, the guests that we have on today, I'm going to ask Phil and George, you guys looking forward to the Brazilian election? Uh, you guys have been here. You've read a bit about Brazil. You're familiar, I guess, with the Brazilian politics. Uh, what what stands out to you from, from what you know? I think I want to go back to Brazil more than I'm interested in the Brazilian election. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think that, I think a lot of people here feel that way as well. <laughs> It's the return of Lula who's the big thing, right? I mean, that's the big kind of standout question, I think, from at least looking from the outside. Um, I think it's it would be, you know, from the global perspective, it's somewhat embarrassing for the narrative of global, the tide of global fascism, given the electoral or polling difficulties that Bolsonaro seems to have encountered. Though, obviously, it's, you know, kind of who knows what will happen in the election itself. And also the prospect of a new pink tide. You know, these endless pink tides washing over Latin America that leave absolutely nothing behind. Because if Bolsonaro, sorry, if Lula wins, then you'll have a whole swathe of leftist governments across Latin America. And no doubt they'll have even less to show for themselves than the first pink tide did. But, now, you know, hope springs eternal and all that. So that'll be another kind of, um, that'll be another um, long, endless series of uh, debates on the left about what they all the little things, modest kind of things they'll try to achieve and probably won't. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I mean, right, a, right, George. A pink, a pink tide, tide, tide uh, comes in, tide goes out. I mean, it's a, it's a cyclical kind of thing. I guess the question is, who is the, who is the moon? Which political figure is the moon, which is determining the, the these the, pink the global econ the global economy and commodity prices probably more than anything else. Uh, yeah, that's which, a, which, which, which suggests the level of dependency uh, going on. That's a very abstract moon. And yeah, of course, Alex, you were explaining before we, um, <clears throat> before we started recording that Lula means squid in in Brazilian Portuguese. Um, so this election is a squid game. It's a, it's a big bunga, a bit of a mess as, um, you know, as I think um, many commentators have pointed out for a variety of reasons. But no, I think a, a lot of what Phil, uh, <laughs> I'd echo a lot of what Phil said, but most particularly the uh, aspiration to go back to experience carnival in uh in sao paulo or ideally ideally even in in rio um if it's not cancelled again due to um covid uh worries but no i think it's a um yeah it's going to be a good a good barometer for some of the um yeah i guess to see how bolsonaro's coalition holds up that's going to be something which I, I think will be really important and to see whether the the great hope of um of latin american socialism lula who are you know for all of his limitations um is an unbelievably impressive politician to see how he does now that he's um you know don't call it a comeback but he is he is back in the ring yeah indeed uh so we're, i you're gonna hear me speaking to alcizu canechi who i introduce in the recording and then uh, we'll come back and discuss a little bit more about some of the issues that we heard <music> All right. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm here with uh, my friend Alcizio Canecci, who's uh, a communist lawyer and a researcher, or maybe maybe he's just a lawyer and a communist. I don't know. This is a little bit like that thing from Breaking Bad where he needs a criminal lawyer, or is it a lawyer who is a criminal? I don't know. I'll, I'll let uh, Alcizio explain. Hi, Alcizio. 
Hi. All lawyers are criminals, so we're, it's it's a guild, you know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. A, a jack of all trades. What you're telling me, you just need to be kind of helpful in all areas. Yeah, you gotta help the things go smooth, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Some sometimes that involves disposing a little corpse here and there, but you know. <laughs> right. Actually, we're gonna talk a little bit about disposing of a corpse uh, in just a second. Um, let me just set this up for listeners. Uh, we're recording this on Friday, the second of September, which means that we're exactly a month away from the first round of the election. As listeners will probably have gathered by now, it's a fight between Lula of the Workers' Party or PT henceforth and Bolsonaro, who's back at the party he started his career with, the Liberal Party or PL. Um, but another little thing about Brazil, most parties don't matter other than uh, a couple of very big ones. Um, party allegiances are fairly meaningless and it's extremely promiscuous. Anyway, Lula until recently has held a lead which has been commanding enough to win an absolute majority in the first round. But now the polls have tightened to something like 45% for Lula, 32% for Bolsonaro, and the rest of the field made up of various candidates positioning themselves somewhere in between the two on 17%. Though no individual third-way candidate has more than 10%. So it's basically a two-horse race, and it has been ever since Lula regained his political rights and announced he would run again. So that's just to kind of set up what the race looks like. It is basically Lula-Bolsonaro, and the question now is whether there'll be a second round. Um, But what we're going to talk about here is not so much directly the polling and policies, but a little bit of a backdrop of what the important forces are that have shaped Brazil uh, over the past couple of years and indeed over the past 30 years. So anyway, before we do all that, uh, I'd like Alcizio to tell us about a fascinating podcast that he's a part of, that he's producing, which is a sort of a, and correct me if I'm wrong in my characterization, a sort of true crime drama, but which is also a political expose of corruption under the dictatorship. It's called Calici. Uh, so why don't you tell us? Yeah, it's it's a good description. Uh, I mean, the true crime fad makes it look like it's, uh, it's going to be like, I'm gonna. We're gonna talk about the the, the autopsy and stuff. It's it's not really that. Uh, we we kind of go more in the direction of uh, the political intrigue that happened uh, of this victim, who in his name is Jose Jobim. He was a diplomat. He was a a former diplomat. He was already retired, and because of his career connections, he was very into the construction of Itaipu Binacional which, I mean, until 10, 20 years ago, was the biggest uh, dam, hydro, hydro dam ever built. And it's like 25% of our electricity comes from that one dam. So it was big, important, uh, massive works. And it's like by far the largest corruption scandal in the history of Brazil, probably the planet, because it was estimated to cost like billion dollars and then it ended costing 35 billion dollars so that's a big gap uh, and there's like a rampant corruption everywhere and the, and because that was like the crown jewel of the military dictatorship they really tried to suppress that and his murder was part of the attempt to suppress because in 79 the dictatorship was already crumbling they had already a big scandal and uh, nuclear plant, uh, uh, Brazil, they had Brazil and Germany, uh, West Germany, they had a deal and the deal was very weird and uh, the nuclear plants essentially never were built. They, we bought eight and we have two functioning today and one is like 
halfway through. So you can guess like lots of things were were bad, and there's a lot of there was a bit there was a bit of overbilling. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a it's a big story. It's, if I I know the story, but I, if I explain here, we're gonna be like for the next forty five minutes, and it's not the point. <laughs> they they were already like they had a, a big they had a big issue with that in seventy seven because uh, it went public that they like had issues in that contract so corruption was something that was being talked about and if they started talking about corruption in the biggest works of the dictatorship the thing that they used for every type of propaganda they did uh figueredo might have not finished his tenure that just started in that year he was murdered a week after figueredo came to power when we do it in english if you understand portuguese i highly recommend you uh, follow it, but we have the intention to do it in English. And when we get there, like he was probably flagged for murder at the event where Figueiredo came into power, <laughs> because he was he was invited. He was a he was a dear friend of the new uh, Ministry of you know ex external relations. He they were very close friends, so he was invited for the you know the, the party and stuff. And he was probably flagged for murder there. So you can tell that, and and the story is like very complex because we have to go deep into understanding like the way they staged him, like and you go to all the way to Algeria to this to the story of Paul Sahay and to the story of the School of the Americas. It's a very large conspiracy, and you know Kissinger was involved in the conspiracy of the Itaipu Dam, and there's a lot of issues in Paraguay because everybody knew that Stroessner, the dictatorship of Paraguay, he was uh, a serial pedophile. And you have, like, cables that said, look, look, the guy is going around drunk with 13-year-old kids, and it's really, really hard for us to support that. And the Americans say, oh, <laughs> forget about it. Yeah. Look the other way. <laughs> so it's a very complicated story, and we're going to try and show... How does a state murder someone? And unlike the modern way, where you just throw a bomb at him and you celebrate on a press conference, back then they, they had a different set of rules to do that. And, and especially someone so senior and connected to the state, a former diplomat. Yeah, so it's, it's like for like Americans and stuff. It's like someone killed, I don't know, a senior advisor because he was, he was responsible for the Itaipu Dam project getting uh, up and, and going. So it, it's like it's like killing Dick Cheney or something. Yeah, um, which maybe wouldn't be a bad idea, but that's a whole other story. Um, <laughs> I, the, Is <laughs> uh, just about i think uh so the it's ongoing obviously the podcast and uh yeah hopefully there'll be an english version brazilian listeners uh, or people who understand portuguese highly recommend you check it out it's called calice and yeah we'll look forward to to, to a version in english because it is a story worth telling and i think it also sets us up nicely because you know the themes obviously in terms of military dictatorship and corruption are things that we're going to be touching upon uh as we go forward talking about contemporary brazil um we're going to talk more directly about 
the military, what its role has been in politics. And of course, Bolsonaro is very closely associated with the military, the former army captain himself, um, and in fact presents a, a kind of curious situation where um, not so senior an officer is is the head of state, um, a head of military and, and you know, consorting with uh, four-star generals and so on. Um, before we do that, though, uh, we want to kind of flash back to uh, the pandemic and what the role, what Bolsonaro's role was in the pandemic, and, and also, and perhaps more importantly, how the pandemic destroyed Bolsonaro's image. And uh, LCs, you wrote a piece last year in Jacobin, in, in the, like the English language Jacobin, um, on on this. So why don't you tell us a little bit what your argument is around this? So the thing is, uh, Bolsonaro rose to power from a relatively unknown position uh, and he he managed to to really take every bit of advantage he had from being relatively unknown because he managed to to be very segmented in his um, propaganda so the bolsonaro that the evangelicals saw was a family man a sensible guy a sensitive man who really liked his family and really just wanted to stop people from being turned gay in schools. And so the bikers and the, uh, you know, I want my guns type of people saw that alpha male guy who really want to kill. And, you know, he really managed to curate his image to every type of uh, elector. So he, he managed to to control several narratives at the same time, especially because the left really abandoned uh, popular and uh, social network communication. Like uh, the left essentially said, well, we don't want to use Facebook. We don't want to use Instagram. We're going to huddle up at, in Twitter and complain. So the right had like free reign in their propaganda efforts and Bolsonaro really, really went with that. And of course, it's important to note that Bolsonaro, because he was relatively unknown, could present himself as various things to various people. I mean, he ended up being in some ways a receptacle for various people's frustrations and angers uh, without having to pre uh, present a kind of determinate image. So I think a lot of people voted for him, not really being aware of who he was, despite him having been a congressman for seven consecutive terms. But he didn't really have the sort of uh, major profile um, over a long period of time. He became identified with a very uh, virulent anti-corruption and anti-workers party discourse, but only as of around 2015. So by the time 2018 came around, he still didn't have the sort of national profile that other politicians had. Yeah, yeah, he, he really, he really took advantage of that. And the pandemic, it changed everything because people looked at their leader for an answer, like, what you gonna do, man? And, well, he essentially said, well, I don't give a shit about science, I don't care about anything, I'm just, we're gonna just pretend there's no virus, we're gonna stay, everything's gonna stay open, and, you know, you catch, you die, you survive, that's how life goes, everybody dies. And that really rang bad in a lot of people who voted for him, especially his evangelical base, which is the largest proportional electoral base he has. Evangelicals are around like 25 to 35 percent of the population. We don't know because he never did a census. He's, he's stalling on the census. We're just about doing it now and the results are going to be in like next year. 
that, that's a whole story in its own right, actually. Yeah. The, the fact yeah. that Brazil he defunded delayed the census. He did, yeah. Well, like one of the basic uh, kind of capacities of the state was defunded. So no census happened in 2020. Yeah. And that's related to the pandemic, because if you count every head, you're going to see a lot of people died. And, you know, the, the 700,000 people dead figure is probably very underestimated. Uh, and specialists kind of think we're about 1.2 million, which is about half a percent of the whole country. <laughs> it's a lot of people to die. Like, we, mm. we had rampant COVID deaths. And I often even spoke to Alex, like, uh, the discourse over lockdowns and not lockdowns uh, in Europe and Asia and stuff. Oh, that's, you know, China. What, look at what China's doing. I said, man, <laughs> if only we had what China's doing because what we have here, the, the exact opposite, that's to pretend there's no illness in a country where, you know, we have a public health system, but it's not great. And the private health system uh, is even worse because they sell themselves as being good, but they have nowhere near the beds and the care and the infrastructure they claim they have, it's all bogus. Uh, and that created, you know, uh, uh, another myriad of issues. So uh, our it was very odd that on paper, the private sector is much more equipped than the public sector to deal with uh, patients and stuff. And in reality, what we saw is that the private system collapsed and people had to resort to the public system, uh, not only for vaccines, but for treatment and for oxygen stuff. So there was a, a very odd, uh, not very odd, but very interesting uh, result of the pandemic. But when he denied the, the right to people to protect themselves and said, well, you know, if you die, you die, like a, a very action movie approach to healthcare. Uh, he alienated his base. People started to see him differently. And the discourse over the whole investigation, we have a public, we had a public inquiry around the, the pandemic here. It really ran in the last, from, from April to last September, October, that really ran the political narrative in, in the country. And, uh, well, it, he really lost a lot of support, and people like the, he, he they don't trust him anymore. The whole vaccine thing really, really got him because you know vaccination is something that's very ingrained in Brazilian culture. There's, there's a widespread support. There isn't an anti-vax movement. Yes, um, the anti-vax movement was created in his government. Yeah. Prior to Bolsonaro, we had like 98, 99 percent vaccination of everything, like. Polio, measles, you you name it. Uh, and curiously, this had, this story is very much related to the military because the first uh, mass vaccination uh, effort we had in Brazil was in the seventies, was due to a strike. Uh, the guys from Uzi Minas, which which is like a steel factory, states state owned at the time, uh, they went on strike because they had uh, meningitis. Uh, epidemic in, in Brazil in the 70s. <laughs> in the, during the Brazilian dictatorship, we have a major, we had a major meningitis epidemic. And nobody knows how many people died, what happened, because the military buried everything. Part of the Cemitério de Perus graveyard, which is a secret 
uh, graveyard they had uh, in São Paulo to hide all sorts of dead bodies they wanted to hide uh, was full of people who died from meningitis and they, they hid from their public records that were, they were even dead. So nobody knows how, how many people died. Some say like 20 to 30,000, but you know, meningitis is, a, is an illness that get mostly children and that's very spotty because people didn't have the regular birth certificates. So many probably just never had it and just went under the radar. So these guys, they went into a strike and said, look, if you don't vaccinate the whole city, we're not going to work. And they made the military buy like 100,000 uh, vaccines for meningitis and, every, and the, the wind caught that they were vaccinating some and they had a p popular pressure to vaccinate others. And then they said, well, let's get a, let's gonna run with it and let's vaccinate them for other stuff. And that's how vaccination became a thing in Brazil because it really stopped an epidemic. So people really like their vaccines. Uh, I've never seen, I only seen in my life one case of someone who was like an anti-vaxxer and their kids got measles and they regretted it. So, <laughs> and I think, I think that's a, some important scene setting actually for, you know, European, North American listeners and so on, um, who might perceive the question of the pandemic in Brazil through the lens of what they're familiar with. Um, I think that's very important to underline, again, the kind of mass support for vaccination, um, a general kind of concern with health and, a you know, I, I think a, a desire for most Brazilians that the health service be improved because there is a public health system. Uh, and also the, you know, Bolsonaro's denialism, uh, I don't think played in the way that, for example, Trump's uh, attitude to to COVID did in the US in terms of having a fairly large substantial part of uh, his supporters and the Republican Party um, going along with his sort of rhetoric against and sort of denialism of uh, of the pandemic. Um, so it, the, what was in, in play in Brazil was something rather different. Of course, Bolsonaro's support base, his heart, the hardcore nucleus, um, maybe liked some of his uh, kind of bravado attitude. Um, you know, I mean, he was on camera um mocking people dying of suffocation, you know, lacking oxygen, um, and also, you know, exclaiming, so, yeah, so what, what do you want me to do um, in, in the face of, you know, 600,000 people dying or more? So I think it's important, I guess, to, to set the scene and, yeah, I guess to, to, to say that the situation in Brazil was rather different. And, you know, unfortunately, Bolsonaro is often compared to Trump, and I'm often <laughs> at pains to emphasize some very important divergences and differences. But anyway, um, I'll say so I'll let you kind of carry on, um, because to take us forward to the congressional inquiry that happened last year, um, how did that expose Bolsonaro? Because I think there were some important cases in, involving corruption, involving non-purchase of vaccines and so on. So I'll let you take the story on. So, yeah, uh, it was found in the presidential emails that uh, he denied contact with Pfizer 75 times. He delayed their purchase as much as he could. He boycotted the, the vaccination program that the state of Sao Paulo uh, developed with the Chinese government. Uh, the deal they struck with AstraZeneca for making vaccines at their state-run vaccine factory in Rio was a bad one. They just, they just like, didn't 
they had to requalify their production line and they didn't fund it, so it was never getting done. And from the get-go, he said, well, vaccination is going to be optional, nobody's going to get vaccinated. And he started to get to be pressured by his own base. Like, oh, what you talking about? I want, I want my vaccine. So, and he never managed to adapt. Bolsonaro is a very inflexible man because he's a fucking paranoid man. Uh, so, in that situation, people started looking more and more to the inquiry. And the deals that were being done were dodgy, to say the least. Like, we, we had a lot of former military colonels especially coroners and generals, trying to lobby to make very underhanded deals with unknown vaccine manufacturers. Uh, deals are clearly... You can tell from afar that there's no vaccine there. Like It's clearly a scheme to make money. Uh, and the way they... You know, pour the resources, like endless resources, into, into making a hydroxychloroquine and that never led anywhere like we have a lack of hydroxychloroquine now to treat malaria which is what it's supposed to treat in the indigenous populations uh in the, the whole i'm not even gonna get into how he treated the indigenous populations in brazil directly because it's from top to bottom dreadful and genocidal and to be honest we really don't have the time. He really tried to eliminate them. That's an, that's an episode in way. its own right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they tre- he really tried to kill them off in every way he could. And, and sadly, uh, it, it does not detract from his votes that. It's, it's sadly, the general understanding of the population that is nobody cares. Uh, but anyway, uh, when people started looking, like, well, what? Like, some guy got into the Ministry of Health, and some unknown guy, he was a corporal from the military police of Minas Gerais, a guy who, you know, nobody knew who he was, he never had, like, a distinct public office or anything. He walked into the Ministry of Health with a proposition like, oh, you buy this 400 million doses of vaccine that's already done. Like, everybody in the world is scrambling for vaccine, but this corporal from the military police of the state of Minas Gerais, well, he had 400 million doses of AstraZeneca vaccines already made, you know, packaged, ready to be sent. But he wanted the dollar a dose of, you know, uh, hush money. And and that was, became public, and it was, like, bizarre. That was the big scandal, like, People were trying to make money of the fact that the Ministry of Health was very poorly structured. It was being run by a blatant incompetent General Pazuello, who has he himself been adjacent to very weird cases. You know, when he ran the... He, he was a, a supply general, right? And when he ran the supply, uh, the main supply hub of armaments of the military here in Rio, like every other month, all the ammo was robbed. It was crazy. It was robbed three times. Like in the order of tens of millions of rounds were just stolen. 
It's crazy, man. And all, and all when, this is and all this is important because I mean we're going to come to talk about this more directly, but the military tries to portray or present an image of competence of getting things done in a in a in a country where things are corrupt and you know there's backhanders and uh, judicial yeah, yeah, wrangling yeah. and so on and it's, so it's important that this military figure uh, placed in uh, you know in situ as health ministry uh, managed to mess things up so badly. And he let people drown in the dry in Manaus. Manaus, if you don't know, it's an Amazon city, was not really connected by roads, so it's really hard to make supplies get there. And it's a large city of two million people or something. So Yeah, it's a big city and they had, of course, an oxygen factory that was local, but it just couldn't cope with the volume they needed. And the state of Amazonas told them, look, we really gonna need some oxygen. And he said, oh yeah, all right. And he did nothing. He did nothing. He let at least 150 people drown in their own fluids because he was just blatantly incompetent. He just didn't care. And, and, and of course, the, the, the most striking irony of this is that ultimately Venezuela shipped in oxygen to help uh, you know, hospitals in Manaus, um, COVID patients. And of course, the irony is that the Bolsonaro government has you know, repeatedly um, gestured at, at Venezuela as a sort of communist dictatorship. And if we don't uh, you know, play the anti-communist card effectively, that if you know, we don't rule Brazil, uh, Brazil will become a Venezuela. So <laughs> kind of delicious irony yeah. there. Yeah, the Venezuelans, they really, really helped. But... Uh, they could have helped more because uh, they they said, well, you should just, you know, come here, take everything you need. Uh, we, we'll give you a plane. And they said, no, we don't want any help from you. And they took the oxygen by road. And that took like three days. And they never thanked the Venezuelans. And they yeah. never asked for it. And it was very, very bad. Because, I mean, even if you're like a maniac, because the... Ministry of Exterior Relations that Brazil had at that point, it was a complete madman. Like, if you look at his face, you say, well, that's, that guy is not 100%. And he, he, he's, he once said, like, we're going to be a proud pariah of the world. Like, we don't want relations with anyone. We were special. And, you know, he, and he was the minister. So you, you can imagine how bad that was. <laughs> Turning a little bit more to the kind of politics and the sort of analysis of what this means, I mean, I have a theory, um, and, you know, I'll seize you, tell me if you agree or not, that, you know, Bolsonaro represented in some ways anti-politics in government. I mean, he was elected effectively on a sort of anti-politics ticket, surfing the wave of the protests and demands around anti-corruption, rejection of the Workers' Party, who had, um, I'm sure listeners are familiar, um, been wrapped up in a massive corruption scandal, um, which rolled on from 2014 to 16, 17, and it was constantly in the news. Now, um, the that sort of anti-politics in government, what does that look like when, you know, you are the politics suddenly or you're, you know, you're an administration? Um, I think it, to a certain extent, is parasitic on things actually working. So you can signal your distance uh, and your hatred of the establishment of the mainstream, pose as an outsider and so on. And that works so long as things more or less are working, just at a kind of basic level. But once the sort of basic 
functions of the state, like, for example, healthcare, start falling apart as they did during the pandemic with, uh, you know, various health systems in collapse, that then becomes problematic because your anti-politics um, kind of falls on deaf ears. You're, you know, people generally expecting the government to have some basic competence in making things keep running. Um, and I think that's the kind of contradiction that the Bolsonaro government found itself suddenly with the pandemic and why it lost so much support. Actually, I do disagree a bit. Uh, he really runs with his you know, now very diminished base that the reason why things are crumbling is because he's an outsider, he's being boycotted. And nobody wants to let him do yeah. what he ne- really needs to do. But, you know... Most people will say that's bullshit. But that's the point. The His hardcore will stick behind him. And the, his hardcore base is probably somewhere around 20% of the population. But yeah. you know, he, he was elected with 55% in the second round. Um, and so large swathes of kind of the mainstream, you know, um, in, at a kind of establishment level, um, kind of stopped supporting him, you know, in terms of in the media and so on, um, as well as large swathes of the population. So as, as, a, as a consequence, he has to continually double down on his kind of most extreme rhetoric because just to play to sustain his hardcore base and i think that's just until the election anyway that's been his modus operandi yeah and the fact it's not only like it's not only the health collapse like the economy is in the doldrums uh we had rampant inflation and it's not because of the war uh it's not because of uh, external reasons it's because he essentially gutted our means of inflationary regulation like uh, the Brazilian government had a very well established uh, method of not letting food prices go up because the government bought essentially every single staple food we eat and they stored it and they regulated the prices by storing it in their own storage and he gutted it all and now rice went up beans went up Corn went up, maize went up, uh, milk is through the roof, and people just cannot have like a normal diet. Red meat, which Brazil is probably the biggest producer in the world, is inaccessible. In, it's completely inaccessible to probably sixty-five percent of the population right now. So you, there, you can tell that something's really wrong. Yeah, and that has allowed. Uh, that has allowed. I mean, in the electoral context. Lula and the Workers' Party to um, kind of play the uh, image that they would have done anyway, but it allows it to land all that much harder of a kind of return to the good times, right? So Lula will talk about being able to have a beer and a barbecue at the weekend and make that accessible to the majority of the population once again, which it now isn't. Um, And I wanted to just mention that as a means to kind of just make a little bracket here and talk a little bit about what the left's role throughout the pandemic and throughout Bolsonaro's uh, rule has been because uh, the extent to which they provided leadership against Bolsonaro is is really questionable, I think. And the Workers' Party in particular has, because of inflation, because of the massive price rises, has been landed in a relatively favorable favorable situation. Had that not been the case, I think the election would be much tighter than it actually uh, looks like, according to the polls. Yeah. Yeah, I do agree with that. Uh, Bolsonaro still would have the benefit of the doubt. He has, uh, well, he has the state in his hand, which is very helpful to run an election. Uh, He's running on highly illegal maneuvers 
to to try and to uh, make people vote for him. Essentially, he's he's just throwing money everywhere. Uh, he's a very weak president, and the Congress just loves him for that because he can run the country without asking him whatever. So uh, Arthur Lira, who runs the House, he essentially is the president because he he's the one who do you know the budget. <laughs> the budget is all on him. And he has a secret budget. That's all his. And he can do whatever he wants. No accountability. No one, The public cannot see. And that is going directly to the places where he can get most votes. So that's a very powerful machine for you to have. And even with all that, Bolsonaro is very behind. Because the economy is so bad. Like It's, it's really bad. And, and they say it's good which I think makes people even angrier because like if you say like well it's yeah it's not great but we're trying to do something here it's just wait and you'll see maybe people have a little patience but when you say no you're crazy everything's good like you're trying to like gaslight the population into believe that the prices haven't, haven't risen people say well he, this guy is a fool he, he has no clue what he's doing yeah and most and, and most recently if, he said that uh, you know you know there's no hunger in brazil it's not like you see people asking for bread outside of the bakery and it's like anybody <laughs> who lives in brazil will you know i <laughs> see it every single day you're outside the bakery and there's people begging for bread so um it very much is yeah. the case um but I, I did want to just just return to something. I, how would you characterize, um, just to kind of briefly kind of put a nail on it, um, how would you cr- characterize the left kind of performance over the Bolsonaro period? What has it done? Well, there's... Well, let's go. Uh, PT is running... Uh, is trying to make itself anew. They had a lot of very old people running the party. And these people uh, are not electable anymore. And that second generation, that generation of like people who would be like in the 50s and 40s, which is like prime age for public office, you'd say, they did not stick. Like people don't like them. Uh, they never were like uh, viable electoral options. Like they got elected like when Lula was creaming because Lula made them uh, their careers but they don't have a lot of uh, their own merits they have very little charisma the likes of Fernando Haddad and uh, Jacques Wagner and stuff these people uh, they're not the future of the party so the party has really realized they need to put up a new generation of very young people and if you look at the youngest generation of candidates and party members like they run elections you see a more diverse uh cadre of people you see many more women running for office and you can tell the party said look we really need to adapt to times no more like university professor professor types running for office and they try to you know renew but in the, in the meantime they were absolutely destroyed by the polls and the, the votes because the left in general has been pummeled in the elections since 2016. So uh, they're trying to like uh, steady the ship while running very big internal changes uh, and they really struggle. But they are a very large party that have 
that has very good uh, union connections and uh, connections in the rural uh, area of the country of MST, which is the largest social movement in Latin America. And so they're going to be all right, I'd say. They're going to they're gonna transition well. But they needed to be off the spot for a bit. Like the other parties, they really had a chance here. Like if you're PSOL, if you're PDT. Yeah, PSOL being the Party of Socialism and Liberty, which was a break off from the, from the PT in the 2000s. Yeah. A PDT was, uh, is a traditional party that came from Leonel Brizola, which was like one of the stalwarts of Brazilian resistance to the military dictatorship, and now became sort of a weird party. Like, it's got a bit of neo-Nazi infiltration and Dukinism and you know, Nazbol types going around, so it's, it's kind of weird. And traditionally was more of a kind of national developmentalist party associated with with that and now i mean arguably yeah, Ciro, Ciro gomes i think is uh, you know probably the last remnants of a bourgeois developmentalism in in brazil i mean i think that's what he represents I, in very i free. don't agree lula is much more of that than he is and he's successful you know Ciro is just Ciro is just talk man it's it's, it's he thinks of himself as a very intelligent, articulate man, but if you if you look at what he says, it, it doesn't make sense. But anyway, Pessoa especially, they had a chance. Like, well, PT are not doing well. They're you know they're retreating, they're strategically retreating from a lot of places. They're not running a lot of candidates in the main elections because they know how to, they have no chance of winning uh, big mayors and uh, big cities or even states. They try to hide a little bit. And Pessoa did nothing with that. And, and Pessoa were to, to the left, to the left of PT, and uh, to a certain extent, yeah, kinda. acted acted <laughs> as a sort of moral conscience of the of, yeah, of the workers' the party, and and the, the workers' party increasing kind of uh, institutionalization over the period that Lula was in power made Pessoa so uh, its appeal to certain people was precisely that it kind of remained truer to its uh, to the PT's original. Yeah, but that's that's the main issue, like. It's a moral conundrum they have. It's not an organization conundrum. They, they don't look at what PT has done, which, what is the, the, the really, you know, big mistake they did? As they got institutionalized as the party in government, they really strained their relations with their base, and they really left in the hands of the evangelical churches, which are, which are you know, not reliable <laughs> and very conservative and very connected to the tele-evangelist movement uh, of the United States. And, you know, if you're connected to people like that, you, you know what you're going to get. So Pessoa had a chance. Say, well, these people are for the taking. Let's go. And they realized they had to go really far off where they live, you know, travel by bus. <laughs> nah, that's not going to bother. Like, essentially, if you look what the stuff that happened in Rio and Sao Paulo, Pessoal really gets votes in upper middle class yeah. neighborhoods of a left leaning. And all their candidates, they fight for the same chunk of votes. They do not expand from that. They do not expand from that because they have no social connections to people, essentially. They have very little work in that sense they're very in, 
entrenched in their university campuses and stuff. Uh, and they kind of allergic to people in general. <laughs> it's it's weird. Like it's it's hard to like if you're an outsider. Like it's hard to explain to people they're they're not from here. But it's people that they're very illuminist in that in the sense that it kind of enlightenment. They, they think, uh, yes, view of... they think they're Prometheus and they're bringing the truth of you know to the masses and they're gonna teach the masses how to behave and how to think and they have a very moral take on society and yeah i, I, I think that. i think reckon i think uh overseas viewers will will recognize the the sort of tendency yeah. that it exists <laughs> it exists a, a good example a good example on how peso really did themselves here in rio like it was in, in february this year we're gonna have carnival right very important date not because uh, not only because we needed the catharsis and we really needed it but because it's it's economically is the biggest week of Rio like they they kind of do like four or five billion in taxes alone in five days hotels and and, and the people they, they really make their year there like the people who do the costumes for the parties, who play in parties, who sell stuff. It's really important for the local economy. And they cancelled Carnival and they celebrated it. They essentially celebrated letting a lot of people without food in their pantries because they had no nothing to do for work. Yeah, and they cancelled that because of the pandemic. You know, I mean, that was the... That Which was, the was kind of over. Yeah. By that point, exactly. And, it, it, you, in, and we're not. And the worst part is that was everything is on the open. It's no close quarters. People don't celebrate carnival in elevators. They celebrate on the streets. Contagion yeah. rates would not increase by a lot. Like maybe two or three more people die off of COVID. Not three thousand. Not three million. Three, <laughs> because it's not going to be a lot. It's not going to be a lot of extra contagion because of people walking on the street celebrating, and the private parties, the ones in our conditioned spaces, those one, uh, those one happened. So uh, we had essentially a movement of privatization of carnival, and the left celebrated it, and they wonder why do they don't like them anymore? How come this? The people of Carnival, which, you know, everybody knows someone who works there. They hate them and they campaign against them. Why would that be? And, and they really don't understand. Because, well, we, we defend their thing. Like, we, we're not against it. Yeah, we, we're doing really this for you. It. We're doing, yeah. It's, I mean, anyway, yeah, we, I think people will recognize good. a certain kind of moralistic uh, posture amongst, uh, yeah, whatever the the uh, university educator, intelligentsia, and so on. Um, I, I didn't want to spend too long on the left um, specifically, but I think listeners will get the general picture of a emaciated left uh, where the PT remains only the only real party actually in the whole country, the only mass party, but itself, which has been incredibly bureaucratized and so on. And listeners can uh, check out past episodes, which we've done years ago in Brazil, which uh, cover this a little bit more directly.
What I wanted to turn to now, though, is specifically the military. I mean, we've already touched on the fact that the image of the military was damaged by its uh, management, which is, uh, you know, a nice way to put it. It's non-management of the pandemic um, and their sheer incompetency. And the backdrop to this, of course, is that the military has entered en masse into politics and not just at the electoral level, but at the administrative level. So it has taken over large parts of the state at various levels, federal, state, municipal, um, and in the kind of civil service as well, uh, whether it's uh, retired or not a reserve military or even active uh, military. And one of the ways that this is spoken about, and I know Alcizio disagrees with this portrayal of it, so I'm, I'm interested to hear what his take is on it, but it, it's, it's often spoken about as the military party, as if the military is a discrete body which has its own interests within the state rather than being uh, what it should be, which is uh, the state's external defense. Um, so uh, what do you think of this military party? What has been its role? Well, I don't agree with the description of military party because it entails a lot of uh, ag- uh, characteristics they really don't possess. Like, they don't see themselves as a part of the political game which a party is, they see themselves above the political game because they see themselves as, you know, the father of the nation in in some sense. Because, well, you see, they have this uh, very large uh, uh, positivist uh, tradition like Auguste Comte and stuff, and they really see themselves uh, through that light. And you see, like, social uh, science in Brazil till the 50s or 60s, they really had one big paradigm. That was, the people is shit. We are uh, an amalgamation of the worst of the worst in, like, genetics, really. Like, we're a breed of uh, African scum with lazy indigenous and the very complicated people of the Iberic Peninsula. And so, this... Brazilian population is, by its design, uh, you know, irreparable. So we, the military, the special people, the one who have the the ones who have risen above and beyond because we are disciplined and because we accept we accept these natural structures of society, we have to lead them to greatness. So that that's how they roll essentially. Yeah. And no, that has essentially made them run 25 years in, in, in power from 64 to 85. And now what they did with uh, Bolsonaro and even before with Vargas, you know, and they really, they, they, were, they were the ones who made us a republic, you know, they took the emperor away. And so they, they're constantly, they're constantly trying to make it all about them. And Brazilian history has been a story of, I mean, it's the single most important continuous actor or force uh, across Brazilian history, and they keep recurring. I think that's important. And just to add one thing about the military self-conception vis-a-vis the Brazilian people is that it's a military with pretty limited offensive capabilities and who has always sought to target what it sees as the internal enemy, 
And that, of, that of course, is, you know, communists and uh, various other marginal groups, the poor and so on. And I think that's been generally its orientation, not as a, you know, as an offensive force abroad, but as a one which combats, maintains order at home and combats the internal enemy. Sorry, LCs, you go ahead. Yeah, but there's a main difference from what, from 64 and before and 64 and, you know, after. Because in 64... They really pushed everyone. If you were not in their club, you were either dead or exiled. Uh, military men, you know, in general, were the main victims of the dictatorship. Uh, about five or six thousand were sacked like instantly. Four hundred of they they estimated like four hundred of them were killed off or disappeared. Uh, and many more were persecuted. Like, any any sort of uh, ideological difference with the main uh, military th line of thought were com was completely purged from the military. And they never came back because what they taught in the military schools and the, the academies never changed. They still used the same books they did in 75 or 76 today the same old communist paranoia so everyone's been really indoctrinated from the same ideological basis for the last 40 years so if you read that stuff you get like these people are complete maniacs they have no connection to reality and people who have no connection to reality but have all the guns are very dangerous <laughs> And so uh, Brazil returns to democracy um, at the end of the 80s, and it's, uh, it, it, it's a mixed bag, to put it that way. You know, the Brazilian constitution retains lots of old backward features, as well as inscribing a whole new raft of social rights, and it's an, an uneasy balance. And the, the extent to which the, what is realized, or the extent to which the promises of the constitution can be realized depend very much on the balance of forces at any given time. And the reality is that the balance of forces have been, you know, in recent periods, uh, very much against a lot of the realization of a lot of those promises. So I think we can speak of this in terms of maybe a frustrated redemocratization. I think these are the terms uh, that you put it as. Um, what would you, how would you describe it? Well, we, need, we really need to put a light on Figueiredo's government, who was the last of the military dictators. Uh, it's, a, it's a weird feature of Brazilian dictatorship. We have five of them. They, they, ran, a, they ran elections amongst them to, to change the government. They were so good, they had five of them, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, Figueiredo, who rose to power in 79 and stayed to the end, he was about as stupid as Bolsonaro, maybe a little more. And... His way of, you know, dealing with stuff really took Brazil, like, to the brink. Uh, he Brazil was broke from the second uh, uh, oil crash onwards. Brazil was completely broke because we had all our debt was running dollars. And we had, at that time, no oil. Uh, we discovered oil in the 80s. So, by 83 or 84, things were much better. But... 81, 82, Brazil was essentially broke. Brazil had to uh, resort to the to external help. You know, the monetary fund came in and saved the government with a loan. Uh, so 
the economy was really really bad and it people even didn't realize how bad it was because as much there, as there were rampant inflation and we're talking about in the thousand percent category not the hundred percent category is like inflation became uh, the whole a whole thing uh, in the doldrums of uh, the military government uh, the, the way he indebted the nation was so large there was just you know they could not hold to power because they did not want to cede power in 85 the original plan was to cede power in 91 but when the country essentially ran broke in 82 they said well this toy is broken and if hold with if we hold this until 91 we're done we're never going to get we're going to get defunded forever they might disband the military uh so uh, let's let's cede power and they negotiated a very very favorable terms for them they got full amnesty there was never questioned whenever it was questioned in the judiciary the judiciary essentially said yeah well it's it's a good law it's, it's fine Just keep keep them keep them free so they they got very satisfactory terms the only time they really really got a little bit back was when FHC ran the country from 94 to to 2002 when he really defunded the military like completely defunded them and i think it was the best thing he ever did but uh the military essentially never got off power and they were never held to account uh unlike what happened in argentina for example i mean the the, the kind of con- confrontation with the past never really happened it was kind of swept on the rug the thing, like uh, the only reason Brazil ever had a confrontation with its past, it was because the uh, Inter-American Court of uh, Law in Costa Rica, uh, they said Brazil had to. Like, we had an international treaty, you, you're under our jurisdiction, you're not investigating this stuff, you must do it. And by Dilma's government in 2013, like 20-odd 20, 20 years after the dictatorship was over, is that they started doing stuff and even then it's not like it's not like it was in argentina it was not like uh, well let's give every this information to investigators and let's indict people no 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 no. it's it's more like well we're gonna document everything you did and we're mm. gonna show that what happened like uh, yes this people this person was murdered here and this pe- person was murdered there my my partner in calice he worked for that uh for that effort uh, he worked uh, around the guerrilla do araguaia which was an attempt of maoist insurrection in the middle of the country that never came to much but the the its members were absolutely butchered by the state and then you know, you know they were bored and they butchered every single other resident of the region and they took the land and that was actually that so that speaks a lot with how land is exploited in the Amazon these days. Uh, the criminal connections of you know wood uh, and minerals and gold, uh, it, it goes back to that uh, expansion of the military there. So they, they really got everything they wanted, you know, like they, 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 they held their connections to the organized crime, uh, which you know they were a part of. They were part of uh, the criminal connections in the Amazon forest. They were they were part. 
they were part of the jogo do bicho, which was uh, like illegal gambling. Like they essentially ran illegal gambling in the country. So they they got everything they wanted. You know, they got the money, they got the protection. Uh, it was a very good deal for them. And the people, it's not that nobody wanted to do anything. Let's let's make that clear. We just did not have the power to do it. We re we tried to push for elections in in the eighties. We just couldn't. We just couldn't. Uh, they were too powerful. That's that's it. Like they left in their terms, yeah. and still they still play the game by their terms. I do not doubt that even if Lula wins the election with a hundred percent of the votes, the military the military won't suffer anything. So actually, that's a good moment to make reference to what actually happened when the PT was in power from uh, 2003 until 2016, which is that certainly through the Lula years, the military was there in the background, as they always are. Um, and it, they, I think there was a certain accord between Lula and the military that uh, Lula wouldn't try to neuter the military in any way. They would continue to keep their rights and privileges. They wouldn't be held to account for anything. And at the same time, the military would allow uh, a former union leader to rule. And, you know, they, they have a, a certain um, fairly comfortable uh yeah, fairly comfortable uh, sort of arrangement. That changes a little bit under the Juma government, which was, who was Lula's successor, where she mounts its Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, and that already starts to, that grades the military more. Of course, she was a former guerrilla as well, uh, a woman now as head of state. And that already starts to, I think, sours relationships a little bit more. I'll see you. Well, I kind of disagree with the, the relationship they had with Lula because Lula did something that really aggrieved the military. He took them seriously. Okay. He really inv he invested in the military. Uh, we had a very two very large arms deals. One with uh, France for the construction of a nuclear uh, submarine, and a whole class. Uh, uh, we built a plant of uh, Scorpion series uh, submarines in Brazil. So we really invested billions and billions on the in the navy. Uh, there was a very large investment in, in the air armed forces, but a, a big deal for the Gripen series um, fighter jets with Sweden. And the military did not like it. Be <laughs> because it's it's an army-centered thing, right? The other arms are essentially appendixes. And they perceived as being favored. So the army men said, oh, that's not right. He's favoring them. Where are my new tanks and stuff? So he sent them to Haiti. And that where Sauer's very story begins. The people who are in government now were sent in the Minusta mission in Haiti. And they did Which was a UN, of... UN, UN mission, which Brazil played the leading role in. Yeah, Brazil <laughs> essentially ran the mission. And... And... They committed acts of genocide in Haiti. Uh, serial, they were serial rapists. Uh, the, po the Haitian population absolutely hated us, uh, our presence there. And the same guys who ran that operation, Braga Neto, Eleno, they're all in power now. They're Bolsonaro's right-hand men. Yeah, and that is why that, that the Haiti uh, mission was probably one of the largest, if not the most significant, error uh, committed by the PT and government, in, in my view, um, and sure. it, which has come back to, to, to bite, it, bite it in the ass, effectively.
All right, everyone, that's the end of the free show, though stick around because Alcizio and I discussed the upcoming 7th of September Independence Day parades in Brazil. Last year, Bolsonaro tried to mount a show of force and build support for a coup. Is the same going to happen in two days' time? And what's the likelihood of a coup around the election? And what form would it take, if any? We asked whether Bolsonaro has the support of the military and the big bourgeoisie, usually the essential ingredients for a successful coup. That's all over on patreon.com slash bungacast, where if you subscribe for $5 a month, you get access to that, plus two original exclusive episodes per month, unavailable elsewhere, as well as access to our active community on there, debating the central political issues of our times. Once again, it's patreon.com slash bungacast, and we hope to see you over there. Catch you in a bit. (music) 